Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies, episode 15. So welcome to the new exciting intro music here. Uh, I was just, I was a little bored with the old thing and sometimes you kind of take things to an extreme because now I have like 25 different things to choose from and, and the unfortunate thing about it is I think I've, I've got to double check the record but I'm pretty sure I stopped maturing right around age 14. So like all of these, I keep coming up with just lots of goofy stuff here. So you'll, you'll, you'll just have to bear with me for a minute here. Hold on. In a world where beekeeping was just a hobby, you found out there was a whole lot more to it than just that. And that brings in the new F-150 crew cab. Sorry, I heard that one just sounded like a commercial for a Ford here. Let's see what else we got. Not sure how we're gonna. I don't know what we can do. We'll figure something out with that. I don't know. I don't know. This one feels like that guy from like Beavis and Butthead, the uh, the hippie kind of guy who's like, "Hey, everybody, what do you say we go outside today? Inspect those beehives, have a good time. What do you say?" Okay, let's see what we got. Yeah, girl. I got your email about that beehive. I know you had some problems with that inspection. A lot of propolis up there on those frames. Couldn't find your queen. It was a bad day, baby. It was a bad day. But we're going to make it right. Okay, I got a bunch of them. I'm not going to keep doing this here. I just, again, I apologize. I probably lost like a quarter of the viewership right there. But um, anyway, welcome back. We're talking about supplemental feeding today. And, uh, you know, in, in the real world, the way that it really ought to be, this really shouldn't even be a topic of discussion. We shouldn't actually have to feed our bees because in the ideal world, there would be plenty of forage out there for them and uh, they could sustain themselves on what's in the environment. Unfortunately, when you look at, you know, construction and changes in ecosystems, changes in agriculture, right? So uh, we've seen a big migration from all the things that farmers traditionally did to a lot of soybean and corn because, you know, they want the corn for the ethanol and the government subsidizes everything. And if they can get more money with that, they tend to go the route of, you know, most profitability. They run the business. It's not personal. But when you compare things like that, I should say not compare, but when you add factors like that into, you know, kind of the urban sprawl where you get, uh, you know, suburbs become, you know, move deeper into, rural areas, more concrete, you know, less fields, less flowers, 
you know, all these things are contributing factors. And then of course you have disease and other things on top of that that make it even worse, like dealing with Varroa and other types of, uh, um, diseases that impact the colonies, pet pesticides and herbicides and other things. And so because of all of this, you know, we have to, we have to supplemental feed. We have to make sure they're getting the right nutrients, getting the right combinations of carbs and protein to sustain the hive and to continue growing and expanding the colony. I, I kind of try to do my part. Uh, in my community, I think there is an like ordinance that you can't have the grass higher than a foot high. So I'm like the one guy in my neighborhood who doesn't have the greenest grass. I let mine grow as long as I can because particularly at this time of year, I get all kinds of really beautiful wildflowers that blossom and my bees, I'll walk through there and they're all over them. So I know they're enjoying it. So I let it go as long as I can. What I'd like to do today is review different types of feeders. And I know we've covered some of these things before. We're going to talk about some more of them after, particularly when we get into winterization, but I'm thinking specifically right now, what types of feeders, what types of supplements and things would you be doing right now and why? So we've talked about it many times around how you, you, the bees are going to need uh, protein in, in the form of your pollen and carbs in the form of nectar, and we're going to try to replace those. In, uh, in my yard, what I typically do, if I only have two, three, four, five hives, I will generally feed them inside the hive with top or frame feeders. And I do that because if I'm feeding them, generally that means there's an absence of those things in the environment or it's early in the season where I'm trying to boost an individual hive. Maybe it might be a package bee or uh, another smaller colony from a split that just doesn't have all the resources available. I don't want them to get stuck inside for four or five rainy days with no resources. So I'll go ahead and supplemental feed them. If you open feed, which you can still do with a small number of hives, but what you have to remember is you are going to be bringing in anything and everything in the community. So if there are neighbors that have bees, you're going to feed your neighbor's bees. If there are other insects that like to drink sugar water, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of hornets out there. Um, once the feeder is known to the dragonfly community, I've had lots of dragonflies hanging around mine. When you open feed, you just have to understand there are some risks with that as well. You could potentially draw in bees from other colonies that then decide they want to attack your weaker colonies just because they, you know, while they're in the area, they've come to realize that there are some, some colonies that might be a little bit weak, maybe some newer nukes or newer package bees, and they may try to harass them a little bit and get inside their colonies. So I would say, you know, if you can avoid the, the open feeding for a smaller group of colonies, that might be the way to go. If you decide you're going to go that route anyway, that's okay. But don't drop the bucket like five feet in front of the hives. Take the bucket and try to get it a couple hundred feet away if you can. Get it to where it's not right on top of your hives so that if anything else does come around, any other insects come around or whatever, they won't be right there next to your colonies. Another thing I always do is I put a center block on top of mine. The raccoons love to get in there and drink the sugar water out. And if they don't get enough, they'll just go ahead and tip it over. When I go through the types of feeder I use, one of them is primarily is this bucket feeder. And one thing that's really important about it is you want to make sure it's nice and level. It's, just, it's designed to work very well if it's level. If it's off to one side or another, the sugar syrup can keep draining off the one side. And you'll say, wow, these bees are going through a bucket every day. And... Well, they're probably not. It ends up on the ground, and then the raccoons come over and 
tear the ground apart and dig it up, trying to get all the sugar syrup out. Now, with all the feeders that we're going to discuss today, I'm going to do YouTube videos this weekend slash next week and get those posted and just be on YouTube. And I will, uh, I mean, walking through the two types of um, feeders that I use, which one of them is just a bucket feeder. I'm about to walk through that right now. The other one is a pollen feeder made of PVC. Uh, I've already got mine in place. They're working fine and great, but I want to actually walk through, you know, that construction process. I'll also show you, you know, what I do when I'm filling them and my tricks to make sure I'm getting the good concentration of sugar syrup, um, the good sugar to water ratio. So jumping right in with the bucket feeders here. Uh, we talked about some of the precautions and some things you want to make sure you're watching out for or avoiding. So again, not putting them in front of multiple colonies, separating, giving some space, keeping them nice and level. And um, and then, of course, I like I said, I put a center block on top of it to keep the, the raccoons from messing with it too much. Now, once everything is set up at the apiary, I'm going to keep my feeders inside the bear fence, so at least that should keep some of the critters out. That'll make it a little bit easier for that. So this bucket feeder that I'm talking about, there are several videos on how to make this on YouTube right now. I think most of them do a pretty good job at staying consistent, and I haven't seen a whole lot of them be all that different from one another. I was going to share one on YouTube and say, hey, look, here's a YouTube video of me doing one. Here's another guy who did one. But then this one guy kept plugging all of his stuff and trying to sell a bunch of things, and I'm like, eh, we're not going to do that. So I'll give you the description. If you have any questions, again, shoot me an email, jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Hit me up through the website. Or leave comments on the YouTube video and just say, man, I tried this. It doesn't make any sense. Can you walk me through it again? We'll figure something out here. The buckets that I use are very specifically generic. And what I mean by that is they're generic. You can get them from Lowe's, Home Depot. I think Ace probably has them, Menards, whatever your hardware store of choice would be. I'm sure they have a bucket similar to this, but it's just your standard five-gallon bucket. What's important to look for, though, is as you're holding the handle, Below the lid, you want to look down about four inches or so, which I guess would be roughly about, what, 10 centimeters down from the top of the lid. And there's a lip that runs all the way around the entire bucket. Those are the ones that you want. You also want to make sure that the lid you get with it has a little bit of a rubber seal or gasket on the inside of it. That's going to be critical to making sure you get a good seal on the sugar syrup that you put inside of it. Now, to make the feeder, you're at the house, you take the lid off, Super easy. You want to do this where you have either a flashlight or a bright light. What you're going to do is just take the handle, and the handle goes into the the bucket in two spots. Just take a you know go to the inside of the bucket and mark an X in the two spots where the bucket is coming into the handle. That tells you you're not going to do any drilling in these two sections. If you do, you'll have a couple of holes in there. The first hole will allow the sugar syrup to come in. The bucket handle hole will allow it to come out, and you're going to waste a lot. Do not drill in the two sections or little troughs. Don't drill in those sections that have the handle for the bucket. From there, you're going to go all the way around the entire bucket, and you'll take you know, whatever standard drill that you have, cordless drill, whatever you use, a 764ths drill bit. Now, I'm sure you can tweak this up and down if you needed to, if you needed to go with like a... Let's see, um, I'm guessing maybe an eighth. I feel like an eighth would probably be too big. So a 664 would be a 332 so That might be a little too small. But I would I would try a 764. That's what I've used for a while. 
Others have used it successfully. So I think like if you're on a decimal system, that'd be like a 0.1094 or somewhere between a 2.7 or a 2.8 millimeter. Somewhere in that area should get you where you need to be for the right size drill. So you're going to go all the way around and go roughly into the center of where that trough area is. And again, if you if you shine your light you know, from the outside and you're looking on the inside of the bucket, you'll see the lines where the trough starts and ends. And you'll drill through the center of each of those holes. And again, once I get this video up, it'll make perfect sense and you'll, you'll have some visual context to put with this and then it'll be super easy. You drill the holes all the way around. Now, step two, getting the sugar syrup in. So I use a 25-pound bag. Now, you don't have to use a 25-pound bag. You can use a bunch of 5-pounders, 10-pounders, doesn't matter. But, but take your, your sugar, dump it into the bucket. Now, with 25 pounds, it gets me about 3 or 4 inches below the holes of that trough. It doesn't matter how much you use. Let's say you wanted to use 10 pounds. Put 10 pounds of sugar in and then take a Sharpie or, or something like that that you can make a mark with at the level of the sugar. Now, here is the trick for getting 2 to 1 sugar to water concentration. So you put your sugar in, you got it level, you made your mark. Add some water, start mixing up. As you mix, the, the sugar and the water level is going to go down. Add some more water, mix it back in. You're going to keep adding water over and over again until the water level gets back to the original starting line. Once it is thoroughly mixed in, the sugar, everything is completely mixed in, Then, and you have plenty of water in there, and it's filled up to that line, at that point, you're at a 2 to 1 concentration. So one more time, add the sugar, get it level, mark it, add some water, mix. The level goes down. Add some water, mix. The level goes down. Add a little more water till it comes up to the line. Make sure it's mixed up. You're at two to one. Take your lid. Put the lid on nice and snug. Every time you do this, the first time is super easy. But after that, every time you do it, make sure you clean off the rim of the bucket really well and clean off that inside rubber gasket. Because if you don't, there are some grains of sugar that can get in there and can block the seal a little bit. So you'll want to make sure that you clean that. Just with, you know, take a cloth, damp cloth, wipe it off real well, spray it down with the hose, whatever you can do. Here's a little trick that I've done with, with sugar water over the years. When I first got into beekeeping, I would drag bags and bags and bags of sugar into my kitchen, make a mess, end up with ants all over the place for a few days afterwards. But I would boil the water, put the sugar in, mix it up, and made, and made sure it was thoroughly mixed so that there was no sugar and it was all 100% syrup. And then I would put it into something to uh, contain it, put it in the fridge, let it cool off. And then after a couple hours, I would give it to the bees. Now I'm on the fast track system. Like I said, I pour it into the bucket. I go to the hose. I put the water in. I have a paddle-style paint mixer that I put into a cordless drill. I stick that into the bucket. I turn it on, and that's, that's all I use now. So cold water from the tap, done. That is perfect. Now I tell you, what it does not do, it does not do a perfect mix because what happens is by the time you get to where the feeder is emptying and you open it up, there's going to be three, four cups of sugar at the bottom sitting on that lid. All I ever do every time I open it up, I scrape the lid back into the bucket, I add new sugar, I mix it again, and I keep on going. 
So you, it's not 100% perfect. But again, when you're out in the field, you're out in a place where you don't have access to boiling water or the time or the energy to do that, this is the 95% solution. Now, when you're placing that bucket, you know, you'll have it in the handle, you'll carry it around wherever you're going to go. Find a place where you're going to put it. I put just a couple of small flat pieces of slate rock, you know, just some things that were laying around, but just take whatever you can get, whether it's, you know, a couple of one by, you know, one by fours or whatever, you know, grab a couple pieces of wood from the woods, a couple branches or whatever, just set it down, bring a small little level with you and get it as close to level as you can. As soon as you flip it up, you're going to hear it kind of gurgling as the air is coming in and, and the troughs are filling up with water. As long as you get it nice and level and the lid is completely sealed, this will this will fill all those little troughs with sugar syrup, and you'll be able to you know just step aside, come back in a couple hours, and if it's the right time of season, the bees will be all over it. And once they know where it is, like you'll go out there to fill it, and you, like you'll pull it away, and it'll be like puppy dogs. It'll be like little puppy dogs following you, like to go put new sugar syrup in. They're all hanging out there, like, hey, when do we get more? When do we get more? Like, you go back and fill it back up, put it back out there. 15 minutes later, they're all over it again, completely packed. Now, one thing I will tell you, it can be intimidating to go up to that feeder where there's a couple hundred bees, maybe a couple thousand bees feeding. They're very laid back. I have never been stung going over there and messing with them. I've never had them get agitated with me. I just walk up, hold the bottom of the bucket, hold the top of the bucket, lean it over, stand it up, you know, gently, because, of course, there's bees near the bottom, and, and when I get it kind of tilted up to where it's not quite about to stand completely, I just grab the handle and I lift it up off the ground and I walk away. I've never been stung. They don't, you know, you'll hear them buzz a little bit sometimes because they're just talking a little bit of smack. And they're like, you know, it's, yeah, fine, whatever. Just pick it up and walk away. Okay, so that about covers it for the setup on that feeder. Like I said, I'll go through it in much more detail in the video and hopefully that'll answer any remaining questions. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Okay, so the next thing I want to go into is the pollen feeder. The way I've done my pollen feeders, again, it was the same thing, right? I found some people on YouTube who were doing them. I copied what they did. I'm not, you know, the, the inventor of the world here. That They've came up with some pretty good designs. They seem to be working, and that's what I'm using too. I will cut the similar types of pieces and have them on hand this weekend or next week, and I will walk through all of that. But long story short, I would take the either the four, four to six-inch PVC pipe, Get a section that's about 18 to 20 inches long, roughly. So probably somewhere in that like 42 to 45 centimeter range uh, for the metric system team. And you get a cap on one end. So just make sure you can get a cap. I don't. I did not uh, cement mine. I didn't have anything that was going to be messing with it that would need to be cemented. But put the cap on one end. On the other end, I use a downspout adapter connector. So, so and I and I use the entrance towards the top. That way the bees can fly in and then kind of go over and into the pollen area. It just reduces the possibility of moisture getting into the pollen and any of the pollen coming out. So capped on one end and the uh, downspout adapter on the other. 
And then with this, I draw, I drill a couple of holes into the top of it, about four inches from each end, put an eyelet into each of those. And then uh, I think I put like a drop of some sealant on them as I put them in like a drop of silicone or, or glue or something like that, just so that in case any water ran down, it didn't get into the inside of the pollen feeder. Again, I'll walk through all this in the video. And then I just added a couple of pieces of wire, hung it from a tree, and that's where they live. I, you know, you, you can basically open up the, the capped end, stick it into the pollen feeder, fill it up, put the cap back on, lift it out, hang it back up in the tree again, and you're done. Or you can even just grab a, um, you know, take it hanging still in the tree, grab a cup, put it in the bag, shake it down into the feeder, and leave it as it is. So they're super easy to make, and they're very effective at times of year when, uh, when the pollen is a bit scarce. Now, I did want to talk to you real quickly about uh, what I'm putting in there for my pollen substitute. So I'm using, and again, I'm not getting paid. This is just the Ultra B Pollen Substitute. I buy it from Man Lake. What's good about this here is it says, and I'm just I'm reading this from their website directly. It increases brew production, healthier, stronger bees, no animal byproducts, complete amino acid profile, beneficial vitamins, lipids, minerals, made with the finest ingredients, ready to feed when you need it, highest protein content available, 58% crude protein. That's great. That sounds like that's going to be a really good fit for what the bees need to continue brood production through the dearth that we're about to be entering into here in the next couple of weeks. And I, and I would guess for a you know smaller hobbyist beekeeper with you know less than 10 colonies, a single one of these is fine. If the bees are going in there and you're seeing a tremendous amount of activity, maybe add a second. Uh, and there's also other options. This, this is my favorite because it's really easy to deal with. It's easy to hang up. It's easy to build everything. But there are also some that people do for larger scale mass feeding where they take tubs, like plastic tubs you would get from Walmart or wherever, and they do some different things with them and they load them up with an entire bag of pollen feeder. The most important thing with the pollen feeder, with the pollen substitute, is it's a powder. And once it gets wet, it's destroyed. I mean, the bees won't touch it. Now, the first time I got some, I took a handful and set it on top of a couple of the hives just to see if they would check it out or had any interest in it. And, like, it rained the next day, and it was just a big soppy mess on top of the colony. So I don't do that anymore, obviously. The other thing I want to mention here is pollen patties. And I've talked about them before. They, I, my experience with them is kind of limited, but what I will tell you is if you're going to use them, you know, th look at the concentrations. Like, uh, some of them are kind of balanced to be like, you know, a balance of carbs and protein. Some of them are supposed to be really much more protein focused. Uh, what I would say is, whenever you put one into a hive, if that's what you decide to do, be cognizant of a few things. One of them is that if you think you want to put an entire one in an entire patty into a colony, my suggestion would be cut that into like a third or a quarter. Try it in the colony first to see how they respond to it. Because I've put some in there in, uh, in there before, and it sits there for weeks. And it's in the summertime, and it gets really hot. And then it melts down into the actual hive, onto the frames. Then you go to do an inspection, and you're pulling off, like, big hunks of melted, you know, pollen patty. And it just, it, for me, it was they were terribly ineffective in the summertime. I have not used them in years. I have some in this outdoor refrigerator that I have, and there's still 20 or 30 of them stacked in there. I have a 
bucket in my garage of the stuff where you could basically take a, like an ice cream scoop, scoop it out, throw it on a piece of wax paper, push it flat, and then stick that into the colony. Now, my, my suggestion is if you're going to add it to a colony, that maybe you put a um, either a top feeder on and put it just in the top feeder by itself without sugar syrup, or add another hive body and put something inside that hive body that you can set it on top of. You know, again, this would be like a summertime kind of thing, just while things are nice and warm anyway. The extra airflow probably wouldn't hurt, but I, I'm just not a huge fan of those. Now, where I have thought that they might be useful is for overwintering. So I thought you get to the end of the season, or more specifically, the end of the winter, and as the, the bees are kind of working their way up from the brood chamber up into the, the honey stores, and they get towards the top, I would set those pollen patties right at the very top so that they could have access to that fresh you know, protein and some carbs so they could use that to start rearing brood right away. I've used them, and the two things I would say about them are Every time I've used them at the beginning of the next season, I open it up, I'm taking a hive tool, I'm scraping off chunks and chunks of what they didn't use. And I, I can tell that some of it's gone and some of it's been consumed, but I haven't seen any measurable difference between the colonies that I was able to get built up very, very well in the fall, in the, win in the early winter, compared to the ones that I added a pollen patty to. Like, it's just... I'm sure that there's somebody who has a great trick on how they use them and they'll swear all day long they're the best thing in the world. I just don't recognize a lot of value in them. I think if you are feeding quality things to your bees throughout the year, so natural forage supplemented with you know these amino acids and different things that you find in these pollen substitutes, I think if they're getting the nutrients they need, that's probably all they're going to need. They can store that away. They can bring that back up in the spring. Uh, again, I'm, I'm sure there's some experts out there who've done much more research on this than I have, so I'm not going to say that it's junk or anything. It's just, I don't know. I think you can probably do something better yourself. Okay, I'm going to jump in and hit some listener emails here. So one email I got was about a slatted rack. Uh, someone had said, hey, I, I read about a slatted rack, and somebody said I needed one. What do you think? If you're not familiar with this, you have your bottom board, and your bottom board will be on whatever type of stand that you want it to be on. So bottom board on top of the bottom board and before your first deep is the slatted rack. And it's basically about two or three inches, you know, 10 centimeters or so high. And it has just these slats of wood that run, you know, parallel to each other all the way through the entire board. The idea behind this is it just gives a little bit of extra space in there for ventilation, particularly useful in the summertime to bring air. It just, it just really helps with airflow and allowing the bees to move easily through the colony. I believe it was in the book Beekeeping for Dummies where I first read about the slatted rack and I thought, well, got to have it it's in the book. So I think I still have, I don't know, I've got 5, 10, 15 of them around somewhere. I have no intention of ever using them again. If somebody wants one and they're nearby, they can have one. But I don't have any intention of using them again. I may add them to a colony at a point in time just to see if I can actually come up with anything that I see as being a benefit. The only thing I can possibly see where it might be beneficial is if you have a really, really large colony that you're trying to maintain in the summertime in a really hot area and you insist on using a solid bottom board. Maybe having a little bit of extra ventilation there might help. Outside of that, I don't think they're necessary. I don't use them. 
Now that does lead us into my next question that someone had brought up about vented bottom boards or screened bottom boards. Should I use them? I've been using them for years. And what I would say is it's up to you. See what your bees respond to in your area and use them or don't use them. Now, a lot of people tried to make an argument at one point in time. Well, if you have this screened bottom board and whenever the the bees knock off the mites and things, they'll fall all the way through the bottom out the screen. And I thought, let's say that you have a bee near the middle of the colony and she knocks off a mite. What are the odds that that does not fall down and hit one of the other thousands of bees in the hive or a section of comb or a piece of woodware or something before it actually falls all the way over through the screen and down to the ground? So, okay, maybe every now and then that is true. My suggestion, again, with that is if you're going to buy it, don't buy it for the mites because you think it's going to be better for the mites. Just if you want to treat mites, use Apivar or use the appropriate treatment for the mites you have. But I don't think that's really a good driving reason. What I do like about it, I've had some very, very big colonies and some pretty hot uh, summers. And bearding is not uncommon. You'll, You'll look out in the front entrance of the hive. It's kind of a dearth. There's not much going on, not a lot of foraging taking place. And there's just a big beard of bees hanging off the front of the colony. Getting a screened bottom board can help add more air and ventilation up into that hive and should relieve some of the stresses for them and keep the hive, you know, less stressed. Because I tell you, if you get a colony that is too hot and they are consistently too hot and there are too many bees and it's just uncomfortable, they will abscond. Now, a lot of this, and if you're not familiar with the term absconding, think of what happens during a swarm. But instead of half the bees leaving, all of the bees leave. It's literally where the bees say, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. And they pack up and they, and they jam. They're gone. So if you want to avoid that, look for signs and symptoms of stress. Look for behavior that looks out of the ordinary. If, like I said, if you look outside and all the bees in the entire colony are hanging out the door and they're all over the hive, they're not working, they're not going anywhere, add more space Look at using a vented bottom board. The other thing I've done, too, is I actually have some uh, of my deeps that I use that tend to be more of uh, like an off-season deep. What I mean by off-season deeps is um, I have deeps that I would use to overwinter, and then I would have some deeps that would not be used in the, uh, the wintertime. They would just be used in the summer. Some of them I've actually drilled holes in, and then I cover them on the outside with number eight hardware cloth. That way it gives some ventilation. Now, the caution I would say there is if you're going to put one of those in, maybe try to put like a little hood on the outside so that if it rains, you're not getting that water into the colony. But, you know, things like that are just different ideas you can use to add ventilation. If the bees don't want that ventilation, they will propolize all over the hardware cloth. I've seen them do that before, too. Okay, I got an email here from Shane, and he and his wife had a colony that had recently swarmed, and they did some investigation and kind of figured that out, and realize that maybe they should go ahead and do a split. Now, the first thing I'll tell you with this is if the colony has swarmed and and completely left, right, so they're, they're gone, you got half the colony left behind, the swarmed colony is now gone, you're already at 50% capacity. So if you're going to do a split, you really want to be ahead of that. Now, I recognize as a new beekeeper, 
there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things going on, and it's really hard to know exactly when things are going to are going to be uh, taking place and when they have taken place. But post swarm may not be the best time to uh, to do a split because you're already at 50% capacity. Also, remember that what's left behind after a swarm is either going to be a queen cell, or depending on when you found it, you may have a virgin queen, or you may have a mated queen, a queen that's already gone out, been mated, and gotten back. It just depends on how long it's been since you've done your inspection and checked things out. But in this case, I think that what had happened was they recognized a queen in the primary colony. They did their split. They had a new queen. They introduced the, the new queen into the second colony, but somehow through the process accidentally killed the queen in the first colony. So this is an important point to kind of bring up. One thing I always do, every frame I pull out, I'm looking for my queen every single time. And even if it's a frame where I don't think she would be on it, for example, if there's a frame that's covered in like brand new eggs, a lot of brand new eggs on that frame, and, then I, and they're not full, like maybe there's still several dozen cells that haven't been filled, I'm thinking to myself, she's on this frame. A frame full of capped brood and pollen or an all-honey frame, probably not going to be on those frames. But you find eggs and larvae, things that aren't capped yet, good chance you'll find her on one of those. I have had several times where I'm looking at that queen and she is near the bottom of that frame. I will sometimes, you know, guide her up a little bit or even put her in a separate box for a few minutes. Whatever I have to do to make sure that I do not push that frame in and run the risk of squishing that queen. So be very, very careful what you're doing with the frames. Be gentle and make sure that you're you're trying to put your eyes on that queen every chance you get just to make sure that you're not doing anything that could be harmful. So anyway, in, in Shane's situation here, I gave a couple of suggestions. My guidance to Shane was you know, a couple of different options. One of them was let's maybe go ahead and put the hives back together, right? I mean, go ahead and just put all the colony back together again. You have a brand new queen. Make sure they have plenty of space. And then kind of revisit the idea of doing a split next season. That's one option. The second option I suggested was if he can find from a local apiary, you know, fairly easily a mated queen to go ahead and add that mated queen right away. Because that way you'll have two colonies, mated queens, business as usual, right? Everything keeps chugging along, no problem. Then the third option would be to say, okay, we know we have a a good laying queen in one colony. We've got eggs and young larvae in the in the second colony. The second colony can make an emergency queen cell and make their own queen. This is absolutely true. This can work, but it's very important to note. So I know that Shane was not that far from me. Well, he's within, you know, 100 to 200 miles of me. He is probably going to be experiencing the same dearth that we run into, you know, at, at the upcoming time of year here in like mid-June or so. Uh, now, if he's in a rural area and he may have access to, you know, watermelon and, maybe some cotton coming in, some other sources out there in a more agricultural area. So he may do better off than me, but you got to have the protein and the carbs, right? If you want your, your newer colonies, your late, late nukes, the nukes that you're splitting in the uh, late spring and early summer, if you want them to be successful, you're going to have to probably give them some kind of supplemental feed. And the other part about this is you take these colonies that are now split and you're about 40 days away from your first bee being born. We've talked about this before, but I'll do a quick recap again, right? The larva that's going to become the queen has been identified. She's fed royal jelly. 
uh, you know, about six, seven days in, they close that queen cell. Another seven or eight days go by. So 16 total days before you get your queen. Queen goes out, get, does her mating flight, comes back about a week later. She starts to lay eggs. So you're about 23 days in. And then you have 21 days from when the, the first egg is laid until the first worker is born. It's about 44, 45 days. That, at this point in time, is putting us into like the second or third week of July. That's really rough. That's a tough time to start building a new colony unless you're providing a lot of supplement. We discussed that by email, passed that along. So hopefully that'll work out for, uh, for Shane and his wife. But Shane, don't hesitate to let me know what you guys decided on, by the way. I'm curious on that one. Okay, the other email I got was from Richard. So what Richard did, it looks like he had what we call a swarm trap. If you're not familiar with these, it's just a box you can put up near a tree, you know, six, eight feet off the ground. You put them in some fairly conspicuous areas around fields and near fence posts and things, just areas where bees tend to be looking and congregating when they're searching for new places to swarm to. So he caught this swarm. So the price is definitely right on that one. And uh, went in and kind of did an inspection and was checking some things out and, uh, you know, saw, saw, you know, mostly what he was expecting to see. He had some concerns with, you know, the, the bees being cramped in the space. He wants to expand, but he doesn't want to, he wants to make sure that, that the brood will still be able to have enough bees there to keep them warm and to uh, protect them at night. And he's thinking, you know, hey, we got bees that are going to be born soon, but they're not here quite yet. Why do I need to expand right now? Should I wait? You know, so my position is this, you know, even if the temperatures in the, in the night are 50s in the 50s, you know, that's fine. But I know he's up north. He's up in Michigan. So it does get a little cooler there at night. Sometimes even in the peak of the summer, it can still get pretty cool at night. My recommendation is the nurse bees, if you have a good population, there, the nurse bees are always going to stay on the brood. That's simple as that. You can add, you can add frames, you can add supers. The nurse bees will not leave that brood if it's cold. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, the one issue you have to worry about is as the bees, like we talked about earlier, right, as the bees start to get con you know, more confined and more cramped in these spaces, over time, early this season still, it's probably still fairly early in the season up there, they may still have more of that impetus to swarm. They may be more likely to swarm. But as we progress you know, into the season here, you're going to see more of an absconding situation if they don't have adequate space. So my rule is whether or not they're using the space, I don't care. If they have drawn up the comb in the spaces I've made available and they get to that 70 to 80% capacity of drawn comb, I add another hive body. They don't always need all that space. And if it turns out later on that they don't use that space, I can always take some away. The one thing I generally don't do, like I mentioned before, is if I add a deep and, I'm, and I know that there's no way or whatever, deep, medium, and I know that there's no way they're going to necessarily draw up all the comb right away unless it's during a nectar flow. I'll only put one or two frames of drawn comb in there and use the left. The rest will all be wax foundation. And I'll, right in the center, I'll put the two that are drawn comb. Again, just minimizing any space where wax moth might want to hang out because they love those empty frames. you got an empty frame with drawn comb. Check those things out for wax moth. It looks just like a regular household moth. When you see them, get them out of there. That's about all I got. So quick recap here. I will be doing videos over the weekend for how to make the pollen feeder and the, uh, the bucket feeder. And another last comment, you know, try, to try not to use those entrance feeders when you're feeding, particularly during a dearth. You want to bring those feeders into a frame feeder or top feeder inside the colony 
because if they're outside the colony, all the other things that are out there in the world, the wasps, the other, other stronger colonies, they will come in there and start robbing, and it'll get pretty nasty. As your nectar flow d- uh, starts to diminish, if, if, you, you know, if this applies to your region, start reducing the size of your entrances, right? I keep mine completely open most of the season. When the dearth comes in, I bring them down to about three inches, sometimes even the, like the one inch. Just, you know, observe your bees. If you've got a big, strong, healthy colony, give them more room. But if they're a smaller, newer colony, kind of give them less of an area they have to defend. That'll make life better on them. But we'll talk some more about that and other winterization techniques and a few other things. I'll come up with a nice agenda here, and we'll get something else out here within a week. Please keep the emails coming, jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. And check us out at uh, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, wherever else. All right, folks, have a great day, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.